P. Scott Cunningham's 2018 poetry collection, Yate Veo, is named after a man-eating tree, and there are poems about plants that prey on humans in the book. But in his conversation with us today, he touches on some other inspirations for his work and some of the other content of the book, like right-scrolling old-school video games, trashy B-movies, I mean, who doesn't like those, the Miami Heat, and Zadrunas Ilgauskas, one of my all-time favorite basketball players. The book also prominently features his self-admitted obsession with obscure composers and his fascination with epigraphs. But Scott is also an accomplished translator of Spanish-language poetry and the founder and director of Oh Miami, a truly epic project to increase literacy and awareness of literature more generally in South Florida, which makes me feel better and gives me hope about the weird time we're in here in Florida. I'm Christopher Nick, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. I'm here with P. Scott Cunningham, author of Yate Veo, founder and director of Oh Miami, which we'll be discussing with him today, all of those and so many. He's also, I thought, a prolific translator, but, you know, as we discussed, we might have different uh, definitions of the term prolific. He's a very prolific poet. You'd say that, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So uh, welcome to the Florida Book Club, Scott. Uh, Thanks, Chris. I I really appreciate you having me on. This This is awesome. Okay, so looking at your book, Yate Veo, uh, look, I'm endlessly fascinated by titles and epigraphs and and just sort of uh, what dimension they add to to a work. So I wanted to ask you first about the inspiration for the title of the collection. And then you have an epigraph from Pancho Villa that that opens it, which uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, I could probably I don't know if it would be a spoiler to say it for our listeners, but um it's not a spoiler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, please don't let it end this way. Tell them I said something. <laughs> it was uh, good. And anyway, so um, Yate Veo, that's, um, I mean, literally translated. It's, um, again, I'm using my my schoolboy Spanish here. I think it's something like I see you or I, I notice you. That's what I'm thinking off the top of my head. But it also refers to this legendary plant in a way uh, uh, that, that I'm sure there's multiple meanings. So I'll just turn that over to you. What what was the the title yeah. and the epigraph there? Uh, how how did you intend for that to frame the work as a whole? Yeah, I, I love that question because I'm obsessed with titles and epigraphs too, <laughs> like maybe too awesome. obsessed. Um, it took me way too long to come up with a name for the book. Um, I have just like an absolute like Arlington Cemetery sized like graveyard of names for this book. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, but it, it, Yate, I'll deal with the title first. Yate Veo is, um, yeah, like you said, it's, uh, it, it, it's a mythical plant. It doesn't exist. But basically, this British guy went to South America and came back and claimed that he'd found this plant that eats people. Um, you know, and this kind of like fed into, you know, colonialists like ideas about what, you know, other places were like. And he sort of capitalized on that and um, kind of made it a sensation um just i think it was just basically a publicity scam on some level but uh but yeah so the 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 idea was that this you know there was this plant um sometimes they would say it's in madagascar sometimes they'd say it's in brazil that would eat people and just um just the concept of that was really interesting to me uh my friend uh nathaniel sandler who's also a writer um it was i found it in a book of his that was in his bathroom (laughs) um just uh yeah about cryptozoology um and uh yeah it just it really took me and so um yeah so i wrote a poem and then and then after a while i was like well maybe this is the title for the whole book um 
you know, and, and, and yeah, you know, literally in Spanish, it is like, now I see you or I see you now, which is, you know, a conversational thing that um, people do say to each other in, in Spanish language countries. Um, a, a poet um, who spent a lot of time in Madrid told me, oh yeah, we used to say that to each other all the time when I was over there. Uh, but, but the literal meaning of it is not, I mean, I like that as a, as an overtone to it. Um, but it definitely refers to the plant and the idea of the idea of sort of nature is not this sort of beautiful uh, thing to just look at, but something that can, that can eat you. <laughs> hey, look, well, you'll find a lot of discussion of cryptozoology and cryptobotany and such on this on this website in this podcast. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, it, it lines right in. And I Googled, uh, I came up with a, I found a really unsettling artist's rendition of of this uh, yeah. plant. I'm not sure of its origin, its provenance or wherever, but it showed, yeah, basically it looked like an octopus eating this, <laughs> this guy. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I did. Yeah. I was, I was like, okay, this is cool. I already, uh, uh, <laughs> and you even have a, there's a couple, there's a, there's a, one of the poems uh, early in the book explicitly evokes this. I mean, either the title is it three poems about plants that eat people mm-hmm. and, uh, Yateveo is is actually one of the little sections there. So I mean it um it seemed like, you know, and in addition to like that, the title, but also the epigraphs throughout the book. Like one of the poems mm-hmm. is is just composed of two epigraphs. And and as you said, you you have you have this large obsession with it, you know, a a I don't know, a Rolex or a dictionary of epigraphs that you might throw in there. But I mean, um yeah, I, I mean, was I, it unique to this collection, or do you, is that something like that's just sort of a general? Uh, uh, you know, uh, they have a use value for you in your work. No, it's definitely a general thing. I mean, um, I, I definitely collect them. Um, I have, you know, I, I have a notes app in my phone where I'm constantly putting them in when I come across them. Just anything that strikes me for whatever reason, I try not to judge it on the way in, um, and then I go looking for them later. You know, it, it's sometimes it's a way into a poem. An epigraph and sometimes like in the book where this you know the poem that's called two epigraphs without a poem i just i really like the juxtaposition of those two epigraphs and the conversation they were having and originally there was a poem at the bottom of them but i never <laughs> liked the poem and so i just decided one day i'm just i don't need the poem the epigraphs don't need the poem they're doing all the work on their own so i'm just going to call it two epigraphs without a poem um but i actually i mean i i probably cut a lot of epigraphs out of the book um as a friend of mine one of my first readers the the poet Terry Pickman was like, you just, you need to cut back on these. There's too many in the book. Uh, Cause for me, I would, I would have an epigraph for every single poem if I could, I think. Uh, no, why not? You know, I mean, what <laughs> it's, like, it's like, what's stopping you? They're your works, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, another one of the recurring motifs to me, and maybe this is just because of like so my fascination with ecological imagery and things like this, but it seemed like there were a lot of images of nature. I mean, even if they weren't like central to maybe the poem's themes, like in addition to the plant of of, of the the title and the, and those poems, there's imagery of snakes, pine cones, blizzards, the sea. Uh, in the poem Origin Myth, there's the idea of water swallowing a boat, and uh, conversely, uh, in the poem Soda Can. It seemed like there were the evocations of development and commercialism, you know, about the invention of the can, but also a development uh, that's named after the developer. I like that immediately resonated with me. I mean, living in Florida, you know, we see uh, stuff like that. So I didn't I wonder if that was a deliberate thematic choice or 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 is this just, you know, maybe unconscious influences or or or, or you know, perceptions coming through? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was a deliberate choice. In that, you know, I didn't sit down and say, oh, I want to have a lot of natural imagery in the book. Right, right. Um, 
I would say that the the sort of like commercialism was was maybe more conscious because I've always kind of liked poems that you know use you know quote unquote like unpoetic subjects as their as their inciting point. Um, so that that definitely was you know like I always wanted you know the the poem soda can like you know I, I wanted to write a poem about a can of soda you know I'm um, <laughs> so that was more deliberate but but the natural stuff is. You know, and I think especially with like the trees that eat people and a lot of it is I kind of later after, you know, going back to the book after having not looked at it for a long time, I realized that I think what I was trying to do was talk about human nature. It's almost like, you know, the natural world became the persona for um, for the human in a weird way, mm-hmm. um, which maybe seems kind of backwards and like not really the point of looking at the natural world. But um, but I think that's what it what it does in the book. I mean, especially the trees that eat people. I mean, I think I'm 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 talking about people, not trees. You know, in those poems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I might have got. I, I, I'm I'm pretty sure now that I I got the title of that poem wrong. Is it trees that eat people or <laughs> plants eat people? I just read it for like the third time right before we got on. So uh, honestly. Like... <laughs> I titled it and I don't remember. <laughs> oh, geez. Here, no, I'm looking it up. I've got the book right in front of me. Three plants that eat people. Okay, I, I, I had it right. That sounds right. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and the other recurring motif to me that I saw throughout with these references to the work of composers, you know, like John Cage and, and Morton Feldman. Mm-hmm. And I was curious what you're trying to show with these references because – in, in a way, to me, uh, I'm not all that well versed in uh, classical composition or, or you know, 20th century uh, composers or anything um, outside of people like Claude Debussy, I suppose. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, it's like I, I found myself thinking about uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland with all of the I mean, it's not nearly that esoteric or obscure with all those <laughs> classical references. But I did wonder, <laughs> you know, what you might be trying to to invoke there, because to some people, you know, who aren't familiar with with the nuances of those composers work, you know, did you, I mean, did that, I, I guess I'll just generally ask like, you know, mm-hmm. those, why were those like, why was that a touchstone for you here in, in these poems? Yeah. I mean, it, I definitely realized that the, the audience for contemporary poems about Morton Feldman is extremely small. <laughs> if perhaps not existent. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I really struggled with that a lot. And people who read, you know, early versions of the book were also like, can you just take Feldman out of it? Like, do you really need him there? <laughs> Cause he's sort of like, I feel like I need to go like Google this guy in order to read these poems. And I, I get that. And I struggled with it. Cause I'm not, I'm not really a poet who's trying to be, um, you know, make you do a lot of work and uh, alienate people through the language. Um, but you know, the fact is I just became obsessed with the guy um, I read um, Alex Ross, the New Yorker um, classical music critic, wrote a profile of Feldman in the magazine in 2006, I want to say. Mm. And I read it and was just like, whoa, like, who is the guy? I need to know everything about him. And it it really was like a decade long obsession with the guy. <laughs> uh, and so wow. the whole book was was originally supposed to be like kind of like a verse biography of Feldman. Um, and I, I sort of failed in that assignment. Um, Cause it just, I just couldn't ever do it to the degree that I, I don't know. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I don't, I don't really have any like deep analysis about why I couldn't do it, but eventually just through working on the book, it became something else and it mm-hmm. became more, much more a book about me than Feldman. And so the, the Feldman work in there is, is persona for sure. I mean, I think maybe it was always that, but, um, but definitely, you know, I ended up cutting basically all the poems about 
you know, that were like biographical and about his life and kind of like would have led you through that, that book that will now never be written. (laughs) Hey, but you know what? I mean, in a way, like you said, as you sort of implied, it might've made, you know, people could be curious about his work. I mean, like I, it, it gave me occasion. I know some of John Cage's work. Like I tried to explain mm-hmm. to my daughter, I think it's 433, you know, the, yeah. the, the four and a half yeah. minutes and she did not get it at all. And I was like, I think that's sort of the point it's supposed to be, you know, like science. So, <laughs> but yeah, but it did make me kind of curious. I was like, Oh wow. I haven't thought about, you know, <laughs> these guys in a while. So it, uh, yeah. it, it at least is that, I mean, it can raise people's, you know, curiosity about these otherwise maybe obscure figures in, in, uh, recent music. It, you know, I really didn't have any project with it, with that. I mean, I guess, you know, when I was doing it, I wanted everyone to be as obsessed with him as I was, you know? <laughs> um, and I think just, I just, I think I couldn't do what I wanted to do through a book of poems. And so eventually it became something else, but you know, it was a necessary step along the way. Gotcha. And relative to that though, uh, like, if, if, you know, evoking like these, you know, kind of musical motifs as well. Uh, I really like the way you you showed, I think, overall, a lack of distinction or boundaries between different media. Like you really, you know, talked a lot about literature, music, TV, video games, visual art, as they were all this kind of unified artistic fabric without, you know, much separation. I really like that. That that kind of stuff uh, really speaks to me. And nostalgia for some of these media, too, seemed like this very intentional vibe, you know. Uh, references to right scrolling video games and like the Contra cheat code to get the, uh, you know, 30 lives. That's, uh, you know, believe me, that that resonated very well with me <laughs> just uh, <laughs> personally. So uh, but I mean, but, but was that an intentional vibe there too? just the nostalgia or or trying to like, you know, look at all of these disparate works and these disparate media as being just part of, you know, a, a you know, not looking at them as like highbrow or lowbrow or high culture, or low culture, but just all of a piece. Yeah, I mean that that's a deeply held belief for me that that high and low culture is bullshit. Um Yeah, no, I completely like, share that as well. As someone you know, who's so a huge like, fan of Lifetime Movie Network, I can uh yeah, so. yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I mean I'm I'm like a huge fan of the Fast and Furious franchise. I also love so. like Z grade monster movies too, as as people yes. who listen to this uh podcast can, can tell. Absolutely, me. absolutely. Um yeah, so no, I mean um you know, if I was going to write a book with Morton Feldman in it, it, it had to have the Contra cheat code in it as well. You know, I mean, it, I just uh, that's just how I see the world. I mean, I think all culture is relevant and good. And, you know, um, you can find things that are sublime and life changing in, in every single medium, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's just kind of how I see the world. So there's I think, you know, if I'm being myself in the poems that that's going to come out. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of adding on to that. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Megapython versus Gatoroid. Uh, it was a, a sound film. It was on the Sci-Fi Network. Uh, it's it's set in the Everglades, although you would never know it because there's like quarries and cactuses. It was filmed in California, so you know people made all these sarcastic <laughs> IMDb comments like, "Wow, I've lived in South Florida all this time. I didn't know we had deserts and cliffs and stuff." <laughs> It's so weird. It's a horrible, horrible movie about giant pythons and mutated alligators coming out and swarming over Miami. But I published an article on it because I was like, you know, there are some interesting subtexts about people's perceptions of nature and wildlife in here. And it's like, you know, I wanted to say up front, this is don't look at this movie for artistic merit. But but I completely get what you're saying. I'm just you just made me think about some of my own obsessions (laughs) and preoccupations. So it's no, you know, it's funny. It's possible I've seen it because there was a time in my life when I was living with that same guy, Nathaniel, who I mentioned earlier, who had the 
the the cryptozoology and cryptobotany book. Um, he where basically every night uh, we were watching the Sci-Fi Channel at like three a.m. and we watched <laughs> so many of those movies because uh, we both like them, you know, and it, like the trashier the better. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, so but but now I want to go find it again because I'm I'm not sure that I saw it because all those movies kind of run together in my head and there was always some sort of gigantic mutated predator in all of them. Um, so yeah, I, I want to go find it, but yeah, you know, I think those, you know, when you say artistic merit, it's like, I think that's the lens that, that, that where people go wrong, you know, like you're, okay. you're going to this movie looking for, uh, you know, like, like, I don't know what you're getting out of, uh, I don't know, like Dostoevsky or something. Or, yeah, know, it's like, not Shakespeare. Or, or like like on a sentence level, like you're looking for that kind of aesthetic. But but actually, I mean, like, you know, as you probably pointed out in your article, like, you know, plot wise and setting wise, like, like there are actually like interesting things being dealt with here. Yes. And I think yeah. that's true of a lot of pulp. Like they're actually dealing with a, a lot of interesting things, you know, and it's just they're dealing with it in a different way than, you know, what we consider a high work of art. Yes. No, Absolutely. There's uh, and it's funny. It, it, I actually I pointed out too. It made a lot of assumptions about Florida that I thought were just sort of collected <laughs> from like pop culture stereotypes, and I thought that was sort of fascinating too. Given that I think the only there's some establishing shots of like the Everglades and the Miami skyline, but I think absolutely none of the rest of it was filmed in Florida. So I, I made a, an interesting point in that. But you're right. You put it better than me. Um, so no, uh, no and, and that's that that that's a tradition too. I mean that whole. Uh we're going to set something in Florida, but it's going to be filmed elsewhere. I mean, that's, that's a great movie tradition. Yeah. Uh, spring break shark attack. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that film from, uh, 2005, it was supposed to, it was set in this fictional town near Fort Lauderdale and spring break, but it was filmed in South Africa. So like you look back, you pan back from the beach and there's like mountains behind the beach, you know, and they didn't oh even bother to like edit them out or like crop the picture, you know, it was like, Wow, they just think people aren't going to care. Like you can just—I I don't know. It's, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta email me this list of films because oh yeah, I believe spend, me. I spent my whole weekend catching up. <laughs> yeah, but like you were saying with your epigraphs, believe me, I've I've got a compendium of a horrible, you know, ecological horror, and I mean, I mean, like horrible in the uh, in the most delightful and and enjoyable and and, and uh, enlightening sense. So yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. So I wanted you to talk a bit about your translation work. We talked a little bit off camera about, you know, what that can entail and how hard that is. But it seems to me that it's it's its own kind of creative endeavor, even though, you know, you're ideally trying to preserve the original text's ethos, its aesthetic and the author's intent as much as possible. So um, talk about that. Maybe what was a work that was especially challenging or rewarding or meaningful to you to translate? Maybe how it's, you know, a different mode of thinking compared to creating your own work. It's, it's definitely a, it's a different mode of thinking. Um, it's obviously, um, commensurate with it in some way as of writing your own poem, but definitely a different kind of exercise. And one that just, I really love the parameters of it, you know, where you have this work that's it's contained in a different language and you somehow have to, it's like transport it out of the box that it's in and put it in another box. But the problem is it's made of the box. Like, how do you, how do you even make the transfer? Um, and so, you know, to me, I mean, there's a lot of different theories of translation. Uh, and I think the most important thing as a translator is to let people know right up front, okay, like, th these are my beliefs as a translator. And this, mm -hmm. these are the the rules that I'm operating under. Um, so for me, I mean, I, I think that, uh, 
you know, like that sort of like word by word, um, you know, really getting into the etymology of each word is, is, is it's easy to go astray there for me anyway. Like, I think if, if you're, if you're dissecting it into just the words, it's, um, it's very easy for, I think, especially in a poem, uh, to go, to go pretty far away from the original. So for me, I'm really like, I'm really looking at the whole and what I think the whole is trying to do from an aesthetic standpoint, from an emotional standpoint. And I'm basically trying to recreate that within this completely different structure of English. Um, so that, that's my goal every time is to, to make a poem in English that performs the same operation as the poem in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to make choices that are leaps in doing that, you know, there's just kind of no way around that. Um, so, but, but, but one project I think that's, that's really important to me is, um, well, I, I would say the one I enjoy the most and, and that I love the most is translating my friend, Frank Baez, who's a Dominican poet, um, who's almost the exact same age as me. Um, and basically is like the poet that I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's nice to just, still be thinking that way, right? Yeah. Someday when I yeah, grow up. I think as a poet, you have to be, um, you're, I think you're as a poet, you should always be an emerging poet, but that's just, that's just me. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I just love translating Frank because I feel like, um, I get him, you know, like I, I understand, uh, where he's coming from. And so that, that just makes it more fun. And on the flip side of that is a, is a poet like Cesar Viejo, who I spent many, many hours translating. Um, and, and I maybe only got like 12 poems out of it, <laughs> um, that I was happy with because he's just, I mean, he's not like me at all, uh, in, in, in who he was and the way that he writes, the way that he thinks, I mean, he just, he couldn't be further away from me, I think. And so that was really challenging and fun to try and try and find some sort of middle ground where he and I might be able to have a conversation. Gotcha. No, thank you. That that was very well put. Um, I don't know if you've ever, uh, been to asymptotejournal.com. The, uh, it's like a great website. It's all devoted to translating literatures into English, but, uh, uh, what yeah. some, have you been? I absolutely there? have. Oh yeah. 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 Well, it's neat. Cause every work they have a, an author's note and a translator's note, you know, and it's like what you're saying, they kind of explain my, their approach. And it was interesting. There was this one Russian author who translated it herself into English. Like she did her own mm-hmm. translation and that was neat reading her discussion of that. And, um, you know, I remember uh, hearing and when I was, you know, in grad school that uh, Samuel Beckett, you know, wrote in French for most of the latter part of his career, but then he translated it himself into English. And I was like, wow, that's got to mm-hmm. be, it's like, you know, you're thinking like, I'm almost writing a completely separate work, I think was kind of, you know, he put it and it's like, well, it's the same beats and everything, but it's like, here's how you put it in English and stuff. So that's, yeah, interesting. I mean, um, I, that's fascinating to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not even in Beckett's universe in terms of intelligence. So like <laughs> well, none <laughs> but, of us are probably, <laughs> I mean that, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I don't know even if I could ever attempt that, but it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's a fascinating practice and it deserves so much more respect and, and money <laughs> than it gets. I, I agree. I, I don't know. I, it's, it's so hard. I mean, you know, yeah. Just, and I mean, when, and when you find a good translator, you just want to read everything by them because it, it really is just, uh, I think it's it's an art form that has um, it's you know not many practitioners to begin with, and then practitioners who are truly truly great at it is even even smaller, you know. Yeah, no, I got gotcha. you. 
So I want to wrap up by uh, talking about some of your other endeavors. You are the I'm trying to think of like I said, founder and director when I was in Shizu, but like the uh, the Oh Miami, I'll call it a project. I think that seems to be <laughs> sort of a it encompasses a lot of different media and outreach practices and, and things like that. And I mean, it just seems so beautifully ambitious. And it just seems like that alone must be almost a full time job just, uh, you know, <laughs> managing all of its various uh branches and iterations so i'm sure it's a labor of love but um can you explain a little bit about uh what you do there and uh how you get involved in the community and everything yeah i mean um i started on miami because i i came to grad school as a fiction writer and i came out as a poet which i wasn't really prepared for uh and so i started organizing really just to like find community and that blossomed into doing an entire poetry festival um during the month of april and um yeah the the goal of the festival is for everybody in miami to encounter a poem during the month of april um and yeah it it became my job i didn't really set out for it to be my job but um it's my fault because i just kept doing it (laughs) so uh, eventually i I became a 501c3 and and now it's an organization with with nine full-time staff members wow and uh yeah it's wild it's been a journey i mean it's uh it's it's so different from i you know you called it a project and that's really what it was at the start and now it's so much more than that it um you know, we, we teach, yeah. uh, I was looking for a catch all. <laughs> no, no, for sure. I mean, no, absolutely. It's not, it's not a mischaracterization by any stretch. Um, but you know, like we, we teach poetry to, you know, like around 400 kids a year in public schools. And, uh, we do this month long poetry festival and we publish books and it's, uh, yeah, it's really, um, it, it's really just a privilege to be a part of it. You know, the people I work with are all amazing and the people we, we interact with are incredible. And, and the way that it, I get to see Miami through the eyes of, of the organization is, yeah, it's really a gift. Not everybody gets to do it. So it's cool. No. Well, I'll tell you this. It makes me feel better and gives me hope about Florida in this weird time that we're in <laughs> for, for lack of a better term. Uh, so uh, uh, thank you. Uh, we, we need all the hope we can get. So now. All right. Well, all right. Thank you. Peace. Scott Cunningham. Scott, I'll just call you that. We have off camera. We went over all this. To, don't need to rehash all that. But um, it's I, either or. They both work. Uh, I answer to both. So all right. Yeah, no. Well, at the time we're talking, uh, the Heat are down two to one right now in the finals. But uh, we don't know. By the time this goes live, the finals will be over. So we don't know. But let's let's go Heat. We like the underdog story. And uh, even though I hated the Heat for so long after LeBron left my hometown team to uh, come down there, I'll. I'll, I'll I like this team. So, <laughs> yeah, this team is, is probably, you know, the most likable heat team I think of all time. Um, but I think some people still carry some residual hatred from those LeBron years. Which <laughs> no, I get. I, and, and you get big props from me from doing an appreciation of Zadrunas Olgauskas, who's probably my favorite Cavalier <laughs> of all time. When I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, OK. I'm, uh, and, and I forgot that he played for that one Heat team right at the end of his career he when did. he came down. So, yeah, I, uh, he did. We, we got a little big Z time here in Miami, which was nice because, yeah, I, I love him, too. I, you know, I, I have to be an enemy of Jokic right now, but, I, but I've always <laughs> loved the uh, the slow plotting center who sort of just like, you know, gets his way through guile, you know, rather than Z, Z had that little jumper. He could hit that little jumper. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, he's probably not in the same universe as Jokic, but still <laughs> it's uh yeah, I get the comparison. He's the same species, but yeah, I mean, Jokic is yeah. like big Z on, on, you know, with rocket boosters. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> All right. On that note, P. Scott Cunningham, you're now a member of the Florida book club. 
Ah, thank you. I, that's the only club I ever wanted to be a part of. Thank you for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. Don't listen to our guest. I'm sure the man-eating tree is real. We have links to O Miami and to Scott's website, where you can purchase Yate Bale and his other works with this episode on our website. And spoiler alert, the Heat did not win the NBA title. Remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries, keep reading banned books, and do everything you can to stick it to those people in positions of power who want to hide this state's history from us. See you at our next meeting.